out Bitcoin as a way to make uh, transfer of values between using the Lightning Network and per, and Square plays an interesting role in this. And I said, Ned, is it possible that because the CEO of Twitter is also the CEO of Square and Square has an app called the Cash App, which happens to accept Bitcoin, is it possible that every Twitter user will get a Cash App wallet that accepts Bitcoin so that people can pay for all of this live shopping through Bitcoin? And he smiled and said, that's such an interesting idea. And then I tweeted it, and then he liked it, and uh, kind of acknowledging that, uh, you know, that's where things are headed. And sure enough, six months later, that's where we're at. So it appears that on Twitter, it will be possible to do these transactions through Bitcoin, through the, the little uh, Cash App wallet that uh, Jack is now busy over at Square, and now renamed as Block today, that's the top headline that they just rebranded Square to Block, to emphasize blockchain, what a, what a shock, what a surprise, and uh, that the new CEO at Twitter, the former CTO, happens to be the biggest advocate for Bitcoin in all of Twitter. Oh, what a shock, what a surprise. So, um, this could be really, really, really interesting if Twitter... And Jack is on this mission from God to roll out the ubiquity, the ubiquitous, you know, use case for for crypto as a, you know, a way to purchase, as a way to transfer value, um, and utilize the tools at his disposal, most namely an app called Twitter, to facilitate this. Uh, all the ducks are lining up rather nicely in a row in real time. It's just, you know, we've been watching this as ever since I had that question for Ned in that room seven months ago. And all things keep moving in that direction. So stay tuned because this is this is moving, you know, at a not not at a snail's pace, and it's a lot of fun to watch. I I'm very confident that in the very near future you will start seeing products on Twitter profiles right below the person's bio and above their top tweet. There will be a swipeable carousel, nearly identical to the pinned tweet at the top of the room, which in in Twitter is swipeable itself. And imagine that's a carousel of e-commerce products that you could purchase in real time without leaving the app and have the option to pay via crypto, most namely Bitcoin. So the next articles from... Hey, yes? Tyler. Yes, Craig. I think the other interesting um, idea, which I know you're very aware of, is um, you know being able to... Content creators like yourself being able to... Um, uh, those of us listening or participating being able to stream you uh, sats while this is going on and basically paying a small amount, imagine a few US cents or less something less than a dollar um, to, right. to participate in these. Correct. And that that is the other amazing potential use case that I'm confident Jack is pursuing that has enabled, this has been a, a fantasy in, in the social web for a very long time, which is what's called, we've always referred to it as micropayments, which is, you know, one penny, two penny, three pennies, which a lot of really interesting use cases unlock once that's technically economically feasible, which it currently wasn't due to the credit card bank transfer system makes microtransactions uh, not feasible, basically. But if we could get Bitcoin working on Lightning, in other words, get these transaction fees down to practically zero, then microtransactions of a penny or two pennies or three pennies, or as you said, uh, Satoshis, 
would enable, you know, the New York Times might have a paywall on an article and you might be able to pay a penny to read it. So this could be incredibly huge for creators of all types. You could charge a penny to watch your video or photo. Um, it's Yeah, there, there's a, a, a whole litany of use cases that would be enabled by micropayments, which that's one of the reasons why Con, you know, platform creators like Jack are very interested in, in enabling that. They have been for a very long time. And by the way, Facebook very recently was diving into that uh, with their what they called coins, uh, or was it? It was at Hearts or Stars. If, if Michelle just jumped off the stage, she, somebody who's a power Facebook user will know what I'm referring to. Where you for a dollar you get a hundred, I believe it's called coins, Facebook coins. And then Facebook starts is now encouraging people watching videos to sh give a coin to the content creator, which is essentially a penny. You paid a dollar for a hundred of them. Ah, Michelle just DM'd me to say they're called stars. Thank you, Michelle. So Facebook stars, they essentially represent pennies, but you have to buy a hundred and then you can allocate your quote-unquote stars. You know, it's kind of like how the casino uses chips. And, um, but, you know you're buying pennies a hundred at a time and sharing them with the content creators. So the next Tyler, 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 Tyler and Clubhouse, Clubhouse maybe, maybe three, please. Stars or coins or whatever you want to call them for a dollar and then distribute them as you wish that way. With Facebook's trying that very sincerely at the moment. I think the the Satoshi version could be even more interesting if if they're able, if someone's able to get that going. So the next article I have is from Bloomberg. They say they have sources that Apple, which cut its projected iPhone 13 production targets for 2021 by 10 million units, tells suppliers that it may not make up the shortfall in 2022. Apple, suffering from global supply crunch, is now confronting a different problem, slowing demand for the iPhone 13. I can empathize. As an iPhone 12 Pro Max owner, I don't feel much of a need to buy the iPhone 13 Pro Max. The, the relative improvement is, you know, diminishing with each new year. And I, I don't really see the need to upgrade. My iPhone 12 Pro Max is kind of a flawless device as far as I'm concerned. So um, I can see how the this might be the first year where we're seeing the result of um, lowering demand due to incremental improvements on these not not trivially priced devices. I also see this as an indication of um, the overall economy and slowing sure. consumer demand. No doubt. The next, well, you know, what you're, you're, you might see is due to the cons this live stream shopping boom that I'm describing, that I've been describing in Asia has led to uh, Oppo and the Chinese handset manufacturers like Xiaomi and Oppo and, and uh, Vivo and others are intentionally making devices and promoting devices that have incredibly good front-facing cameras because that has becomes the main differentiator for these social entrepreneurs, for lack of a better word, which... You know, it's also a way to gather that sweet, sweet data. Yes, well, the, the device manufacturer, well said, Magda. For those who don't know, 
the device manufacturers themselves ha have an interest in upgrading the camera on your devices, as Apple has done uh, on the recent MacBook Pros and uh, iPads. And it's been a while since we did it, but for those who might be new to tech news around the world, we ha were blessed with a, some really interesting information that I will share on Twitter momentarily from our friend Nicholas in the audience here about what kind of data can be captured from your iris, from your eyeball. And if you have a really good front-facing camera, um, you might be exposing a whole new trove of personal bio data that you weren't aware you might be sharing, including your gender, which can be determined from your, your iris, not just your face, but your iris, and your age, which has a very strong uh, inference of personal information around your gender and your age from your iris. But it could also tell your actual biometric identity. You are identifiable from your iris, just like your fingerprint. But it can also tell geographical origins, like which part of the world you're from, your physical health, if you've had a concussion, chronic pain, vision disorders, obesity, or Parkinson's disease, your cultural background, your mental health, if you've had depression, PTSD, autism, or eating disorders, your personality traits like neuroticism or curiosity or extroversion, your skills and abilities, your level of sleepiness and drug consumption like alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, MDMA, and cannabis, and your cognitive processes, and your mental workload, uh, which could be very useful as, as a camera on the driver of a car, which can tell if you're sleeping, and that's already being deployed in, in some of the autonomous vehicles. Um, to know if the driver is asleep. Uh, but it would also be great to know their mental capacity, their cognitive process, their drug consumption, their, you know, their skills and abilities, their sleepiness, their physical health, and everything else, or their age. So um, here comes the data trove, you know, through these new improved front-facing cameras. And uh, that can build some really interesting ad networks, for sure, which Apple's doing. Oh, what a coincidence! Apple's building an ad network at the same time they're improving the front-facing cameras. Oh, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. So, the next article. What it, about, Tyler? Yes. Tyler, what about, what about what people using filters? I mean, does, does, that, uh, does that help them in any way in, in uh, not getting those facts out? Mm, well, you'd have to wear something over your actual face to stop from <laughs> the cameras from getting that from your... Right. I was thinking if you're wearing glasses or if you're pointing the phone elsewhere while the filter is turned on and then you're, you know, talking through your filters. Uh, no, uh, you would have to actually have something on your face for the camera uh, to not get that information. So the next one from the BBC. It's, oh, sorry, you're right, Cheryl, from Bleeping Computer. The Department of Justice charges an ex-employee of IoT manufacturer Ubiquity with data theft and for attempting to extort his employer while posing as a whistleblower and a hacker. Nicholas Sharp, a former employee of networking device maker Ubiquity, was arrested and charged today with data theft and attempting to extort his company his former employer, Ubiquity, while posing as a whistleblower and a hacker. Wow. So, uh, Kevin Mitnick, who's a, a renowned OG hacker, took to Twitter to say, here is an interesting twist on ransomware, rogue insiders stealing data and posing as an anonymous hacker. 
Ubiquity stock dropped 20%. It appears the perpetrator thought a VPN service would cloak his real identity. Same mistake that uh, others have made and was busted. Yep, exactly right. You you can't use a VPN to hide your identity like that. You got to go down to the public library, you dipshit. Use their computers. So, uh, by the way, that's a that's a that's a hacker's joke. By the way, so um, the the next article is from the BBC. They say that Meta, formerly known as Facebook, will no longer block searches nor remove praise of Kyle Rittenhouse on Facebook or Instagram. And after designating him a shooter in a mass murder in 2020, Facebook has reversed their decision to block searches on its platform for the U.S. teenager who was acquitted of killing two people during unrest in Wisconsin. So... Um, yes, people were being blocked for praising Kyle Rittenhouse, who a jury has acquitted, and that, uh, that, you know, that's an uncomfortable scenario there. And this speaks to the, the very difficult challenge of moderation for these platforms, where they're moderating, you know, what people are saying. And then you have, and they're in doing so, are acting as a sort of co- uh, court of public opinion, and um, and then a real, you know, federal court makes a decision, and a jury of his peers rule that he was innocent, and and then what happens to the platforms? It's a really interesting question. So, the next one is that Reddit announces. Real-time features, including live upvote, downvote, comment, and viewer counts, a typing indicator, and notifications for top-level comments. So Twitter's getting a much more much more live. You'll see typing indicators when people are leaving comments, and the upvote and downvote uh, counts will all be dynamically updated in real time. Okay, that's great. And the next one is a look at China's extensive tech investments in Africa, including undersea cables, data centers, and fintech apps as part of the Digital Silk Road Initiative. As the Chinese tech stack leads from undersea cables to smartphones and fintech apps, concerns grow for the digital future of ordinary Africans. And over to you, Messi, uh, from Ethiopia, where China built a beautiful building for the African Union in the Ethiopian capital of Addis. And it turned out that they found interesting data leaving the very beautiful African Union headquarters, sending data to Beijing every evening around 2 a.m. And then they realized that those data packages were audio recordings from inside the building. And then they found the microphones in the sofas and in the picture frames and under the desks and everywhere else. And so that's an interesting context that most uh, Ethiopians and Adis are familiar with, and many Africans as well are becoming ever more skeptical about uh, China using tech in Africa, which 
America, just we can look at recent headlines that we've been discussing in tech news around the world, where the FBI and government agencies in the U.S. have been recently shut down dozens of Chinese tech companies for doing corporate espionage in the U.S., most notably Hike Vision cameras. The biggest camera company in the world has now been blacklisted out of the U.S. because those cameras were sending data back to China, just like uh, the, the POS systems, the credit card swiping systems, again, the largest in the world, based in Florida, down the street from the Hike Vision office in Florida as well, was also not only sending data back to China, but was also allowing, setting up for potential um, vulnerabilities, let's say, data extraction from within the networks of the businesses that were using that system. There was others, a China Mobile, China Telecom. Uh, the, the telecom operator was also banned from the U.S. for the same reason, because uh, Chinese citizens in the U.S. were using it, and then the U.S. decided that they were extracting data and audio from those to send back to China, basically eavesdropping on Chinese students, international students at schools in the U.S., and because, how did they know that? Well, because some of those students found their parents being held hostage. And they were being told they had to come home or that something bad would happen to their parents. And how did they know that those students were saying things that the state didn't like? Well, ostensibly because they were using China Mobile. And China Mobile is a state-backed company. And you can connect those dots. So this is all interesting context for why Africa might want to think uh, very carefully about China's investments, especially with regard to tech uh, on the continent, as this article puts it as the Digital Silk Road Initiative. Uh, Adriana? Tyler, I, I don't know if you also mentioned before, but like uh, Europe is planning also like a big uh, fiber optic cable uh, to, to link directly between like, you know, South America and, and like, you know, South America and Europe to have like a close connectivity and, and not rely on other cables where those things can happen. Well, this cable issues, uh, now people are, I think some people are starting to get familiar with it. Equally, it's of concern that Facebook and Google are becoming two of the most cable, active international cable providers in, in now in 2021. These used to be kind of government initiatives, and now they're becoming very private initiatives. And Google and Facebook, more than anybody, is is the are the big players in these international cables now. I, I would say even Google, even more than Facebook. And there's lately with regard to this, where there was a plan to put one in Hong Kong, but now that Hong Kong has become under much more uh, tightly controlled by the CCP. Uh, the U.S. said, no, you cannot give that cable to Hong Kong. So they're rerouting it to, I recall it was Vietnam and the Philippines or, or Singapore or something like that. So it's, uh, it's a very... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I did work for like a, the cable arm for Telefonica. They did own like, you know, one of the biggest cables going around Latin America and was like a double cable even. If it got cut, it could route it backwards and... Uh, and also was like, you know, unique situation we had. I don't know what happened in the end because they, they end up selling the side of the company. But uh, they they have one of the best, you know, uh, boxes just nearby Cuba 
So like, you know, they could be like the first one to link Cuba directly there with Latin America and everything. But uh, again, uh, uh, Telefonica chose to like sell that part of the company and, and I, I don't know what is end uh, so far. Okay. Um, so this article uh, about the Digital Silk Road Initiative, the journalist who's from Africa says, for some observers declaring, uh, they're talking about Senegal, that declaring Sen Senegalese digital sovereignty enabled and funded by China can sound like a contradiction in terms, but it's really just one facet of a wider issue captured by the deepening tech telecoms relationship between China and nearly every African country over the past two decades, and crucially, what it pretends uh, for the economic future of the continent. This week, debates were front of mind for uh, analysts, diplomats, and tech leaders with Dakar as the backdrop for the triennial forum on the Chinese-Africa cooperation, the most important engagement platform between Chinese and African leaders. Dakar's roads were lined with billboards featuring images of President Saul and Chinese President Xi Jinping welcoming dignitaries from China and across Africa. Though Xi, who, was not, who has not left the country since the beginning of the pandemic, will not be there this year. But in, it is the evolution of the Digital Silk Road, a term coined by Xi in 2015, that has quietly become a contentious topic for China-Africa watchers. The Digital Silk Road, or the DSR, includes everything from cross-border e-commerce, smart cities, and fintech apps through to big data, Internet of Things, smartphones, and undersea cables. These projects don't grab headlines with shiny new Chinese-built airports and railways or spark panicked fears of China's debt-trap diplomacy like the regular Belt and Road, but the unfettered influence of Chinese firms developing every step of the digital ecosystem in nearly all African countries has become a growing point of concern, particularly for China's rivals in the United States. Yeah, very much so. Well, America is warning all of its allies don't use Huawei. That's, that 5G antenna is corporate espionage. And so we're, we're being very vocal about that. Or when I say we, I'm, I used to be American. So, um, and the Netherlands is, is uh, reportedly uh, lab experts in the Netherlands have reported exactly that, that, that the Huawei 5G antennas in the, that were in the Netherlands were doing exactly that. So, hence the, you know, it's kind of exacerbating um, and amplifying the need to decouple technologically uh, from economically from China. So, the, the next article, shall we, Cheryl? Let's see what the next one is. The Verge says, Federal judge blocks a Texas law that limits large social media platforms' ability to moderate content saying it violates the platform's First Amendment rights. Here we go. We read that article. The first part of this article was a few weeks ago, there was the, the Texas, I believe it was the Texas governor, was behind making a new law which would limit social media's platform's abilities to moderate content. Meaning, if you can't stop me from saying what I want to say, for example... They were, as we just read a couple headlines ago, uh, Facebook was removing praise for Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, and Texas was saying, you can't do that in Texas. We, I have freedom of speech in Texas, and, you know, 
uh, now a federal judge at the government level, the national level, that means federal, federal judge is blocking the Texas, local Texas law that limits the large social media platform's ability to moderate content, saying that that Texas law violates the platform's First Amendment rights, that the platform's First Amendment rights take precedence over the user's rights, which is common sense. This is what we predicted when we read about this Texas law several weeks ago. We knew how this would end up, that this was purely political kabuki theater, because platform you clicked the I agree button, and in your terms of service, you agreed to the fact that the platform can moderate your content. You agreed to that on their platform. It's their platform. It's their store. And if you don't like how they operate their store, you can shop somewhere else. And so it's, it's we analyzed this, and I remember some of the points that people made uh, when Texas passed this law about how it's purely political posturing by uh, the, I the Texas governor, I recall, trying to get a little bit of his name out there and um, maybe in build up his profile for a potential presidential campaign in the in the future so uh that but that one's been shot down as we knew that it would judge Pittman also objected to rules that required publishing detailed moderation reports because the texas law said oh if you are going to moderate you must keep close tabs and an accounting of what you're doing and how you're doing it so we can review it and audit it and the judge says no they don't have to do that it's their platform they can do whatever they want and it's a really ironic, honestly, because Texas traditionally is all about letting businesses do whatever the fuck they want without metal, you know, without the government meddling in their affairs. If you had to pick one concept that Texas believes in more than all others, it's for businesses to operate autonomously and independent of meddling from the government. So that's what makes this so ironic that they're expecting the social media platforms to be meddled with by this Texas law. Truly ironic. So, um, but they don't like being silenced because they want to be able to say, you know, things that the platforms don't necessarily want them to say. Okay, so the, and as we said, this is kind of a no-brainer from an American legal perspective. The platforms could do whatever they want and you as a user agreed to it. That's what makes this so kind of, you know, stupid in a way. The next one, from the Washington Post, Planned Parenthood, Los Angeles, says a hacker gained access to its network in October, compromising the information of 400,000 participants, including clinical data. A hacker gained access to the personal information of hundreds of thousands of Planned Parenthood patients in October. And let's, rather than read the Washington Post version, let's read the bleeping computer version because they have actual geeks who work there who could probably understand the technicalities of this issue. According to a data breach notification sent to Planned Parenthood Los Angeles patients, the cyber attack occurred between October 9th and 17th, allowing threat actors to steal files from the compromised network. Quote, on October 17th, we identified suspicious activity in our computer network. We immediately took our service systems offline, notified law enforcement, and third-party cybersecurity firm was engaged to assist in our investigation. The investigation determined that the unauthorized person gained access to our network between October 9 and 17 and exfiltrated some files from our system during that time. In a statement to the Washington Post, who first reported the breach, 
The Planned Parenthood Los Angeles spokesperson, John Erickson, said that the stolen files contained the personal data of approximately 400,000 patients and was caused by a ransomware attack. When threat actors conduct ransomware attacks, they lurk in a compromised network for days, if not weeks, while quietly stealing files and uploading them to their servers. Once they've finished harvesting valuable data, the threat actors deploy ransomware to encrypt all the devices on the network. They then use the stolen data as leverage to scare victims into paying ransom, or the data will be publicly released on a ransomware gang's data leak site. It is unknown what ransomware gang is responsible for the attack and whether a ransom has been paid. Well, uh, it's somewhat now becoming rather illegal to pay it, and the FBI gets very directly involved in trying to use the payment as a way to figure out who the attacker is, which is why they don't want you paying. They want to pay on your behalf so they can follow the money, or the bitcoins as it usually is, or, or cryptos. However, if a ransom is not paid, we will likely learn who is responsible after the data is published. As the stolen data is said to contain medical information, including the procedures undertaken at Planned Parenthood LA, the public release of the data could significantly impact affected patients. Yeah. You know, Tyler, this is a little bit off topic, but um, I just can't help but make a comment on it. Um, in Poland right now, like one of the laws which is waiting to be published, um, so like it kind of passed, but it's not in effect until it gets published, is that like basically all abortions are illegal, including if the woman's life is in danger. So basically, if you know, like you're a woman and you're pregnant and it's you or the baby, it's the baby. Like you don't have a choice. You don't have a say in the matter. So it's kind of crazy. And now like what they're trying to do is they're trying to um, make a registry of all pregnancies. So if as a woman you get pregnant and you go and make a test that says that you're pregnant, that's registered. So it's funny how you're talking about, you know, this ransomware attack, how this data is just like so you know, private, right? Like it shouldn't be out there. And here I am in a country where in the EU <laughs> where they're actually trying to kind of gather this data. Yeah. Poland's a bit interesting politically at the moment, yeah. Um, so, the next article that I have is... Give me two seconds to adjust. Here we go. Um, in an internal Slack message, uh, Mark Benioff says Salesforce co-CEO Brett Taylor will continue to report to him. Brett Taylor is co-CEO of Salesforce in name only, it turns out. The information has learned that in his new role, Taylor will continue to report to Mark Benioff, who is ostensibly his equal as co-CEO. However, with this new internal Slack message, which, by the way, Salesforce owns Slack. <laughs> so, curious to know who leaked uh, this internal uh, message over there uh, in Salesforce. But So, it's a bit of... Uh, a bit of a ruse, perhaps. The next one, Congress will hold a hearing with CEOs from Coinbase, Circle, FTX, Bituary, Paxos, and Stellar on December 8th to discuss digital assets and the future of finance. Here we go, making some progress. Let's have a meeting with uh, the biggest exchanges and players. Uh, those names that I just read are some of the biggest exchanges and, and players in the whole crypto space. So Congress, I, I, 
I, hopefully this is recorded and even live streamed because that's going to be a comedy show watching um, U.S. Congress members trying to get their heads around Ethereum, for example. So get get ready for a, a, a real a real moment of uh, of uh, endless giggles. Congress hearing with CEOs from the biggest crypto exchanges. Uh, that's that's going to be fun to watch. So, uh, but my mind is going back, Tyler, to the Facebook hearings and just those cringy scenes. I, I don't even know how we're going to even how long that hearing is going to take to even begin to explain what a Bitcoin is. I mean, they're going to have to start there. So, let alone what an NFT is, let alone what Ethereum is. I mean. There's not enough time in those senators' lives to absorb that information. That's pretty good already. In Japan, they don't even, some of them don't even know what's a USB. Okay, so AWS, Amazon Web Services, announces SageMaker Studio Lab, a free version of SageMaker in public preview to help customers with little experience build, train, and deploy machine learning models. At their big annual event called reInvent, the cloud giant AWS also announced a new $10 million AI and machine learning scholarship program for underrepresented and underserved students. At SageMaker Studio Lab, as a free version of SageMaker for public preview, is a very cool concept to get more and more folks easier and easier tools to start dabbling in uh, machine learning models. <clears throat> the next one from TechCrunch, Sounding Board, which operates a marketplace that connects employees with leadership coaches, raises $30 million. It started as a platform to connect leaders to coaches through a marketplace, realized early in the pandemic that mentorship needs a refresh. And so now, well, now they, they've got $30 million to pursue that. The next one um, from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. <laughs> That's a new publication for us. It says they have research that Amazon revenue from third-party sellers will reach $121 billion this year, up from $60 billion two years ago, as sellers' fees reach 34%, up from 30% in 2018 and 19% in 2024. Yeah, well, that's, that's how capitalism works. If you are in a great position and you can start raising your fees. And eventually you'll raise your fees so high you'll inspire competitors with lower fees. Okay, next up, Bloomberg reporting that Uber adds ride booking via WhatsApp in India. Told you, did I predict that was coming or not? Through the super apps, through WhatsApp specifically. Did I not say that WhatsApp would add specifically ride sharing through things like Uber as WhatsApp is copying WeChat in China, and for those who don't know, Cheryl, you can verify my prediction that this would happen with WhatsApp as it starts to become a super app, as it starts to clone its competitor in China, which is WeChat. Because what's happening is very easily predictable by people yes. who live in Asia, like Cheryl and I do. So, WhatsApp in the U.S. is a messaging app, almost exclusively. They have a competitor in China called WeChat who started out just like they did with a ident nearly identical name and nearly identical logo. And But WhatsApp um, noticed that WeChat was doing something truly amazing. 
they had added the ability to pay for things, and everyone was using it. In fact, it became the default way that everyone did everything. But the critical first step was becoming a payment system. And once the payment system was in place, then you could add all the other apps, very notably ride-sharing, so that you could start booking ride-sharing directly in the app because you have your wallet and your money in the app and you can do the transfer of the payment right in the app without ever leaving the messaging app, which in China is WeChat. And they went far beyond that. It went into dating and Airbnb and every app you can think of wanted to jump into WhatsApp, I'm sorry, WeChat in China, and it became a Swiss army knife of all the apps. Because, <clears throat> think about it, if you were a, a little Airbnb app and you're trying to get users, what if you could partner with this messaging app that allows for payments that has 3 billion users. Hell yeah, I would love 3 billion users. That would be amazing. Count me in. Right, well, that's why the WeChat in China became a super app, um, a Swiss army knife of dozens and dozens of uh, functions and features and partnerships. And I've said all along, watch, WhatsApp is going to do this. They can't not do this. It has made their competitor in China so incredibly powerful that they must be pursuing this. And we've been watching the headlines recently that WhatsApp in India added payments. I said, watch what happens next. They're going to add ride-sharing with Uber. Guaranteed. And here's the headline today. Uber adds ride booking via WhatsApp in India. Just like I said they would. In the northern city of Lucknow, or Lucknow, uh, expanding to more locations in the near future. Integration is a global first for Uber, company says. Users can book a ride with a message on the chat program, just like has been happening in China for, oh, I don't know, seven years. So, the next one's from the New York Times. A look at Particle, founded by an ex-Christie's executive and others, which plans to split Banksy's Love is in the air into 10,000 pieces to be sold as NFTs. A former Christie's executive has joined cryptocurrency experts to create a company that purchases art and sells the fragments as NFTs. What do you mean? Are you actually physically cutting? Why are you calling it fragments? You mean ownership fragments or physical fragments? Because that would be kind of absurd. Uh, in the latest example of art market disruption, a problem... Is it those so-called derivatives you're talking about? Well, I don't know, Cheryl, you just interrupted me while I was trying to read the answer to that question. The executive, Loic Gauzer, who upended the traditional auction format while he was at Christie's, most notably orchestrating the sale of the $450 million Leonardo da Vinci painting in 2017, has helped found the company Particle, a platform that merges art and technology with a goal of reaching a broader pool of potential buyers. Quote, when I was a kid and I was looking at auctions and catalogs, I always felt it was impossible to participate financially and that I was, by definition, excluded. Fraction <clears throat> fractionalizing the works in 10,000 NFTs allows a much wider audience to be part of the collecting experience. Of course, you can enjoy art when you go to a museum, but the enjoyment from art comes also with owning it. He continued, that's why people collect. If, if successful, the venture could help fuel a burgeoning category of competition in the art market, which with consortiums of multiple buyers challenging preeminence of billionaire collectors 
at a time when the pandemic has accelerated online commerce. NFTs have become increasingly popular, accounting for one-third of online sales, or 2% of the overall art market. Last month, thousands of cryptocurrency fans calling themselves the Constitution DAO pooled their money in a bid on the original printing of the Constitution at Sotheby's. Longtime collectors remain skeptical of NFTs, and art experts say the particle enterprise is just the latest iteration of a virtual art world that has yet to be proven. Quote, a work of art is a unique object, and collectors who love art want to own the object itself, said Megan Fox Kelly, the president of the Association of Professional Art Advisors. Quote, the NFT is a separate entity from the object. I think we're still in the very early days of understanding how these NFTs exist as works of art, Kelly said. Right now, they appear to be investment vehicles with potentially very significant returns and conversations around them focused on that. The physical painting Banksy paint the physical Banksy painting called Love is in the Air, which features the image of a bomb thrower hurtling a bouquet of flowers, is to be exhibited starting December third at Art Basel in Miami. The Banksy was divided into one hundred by one hundred grid, resulting in ten thousand unique squares or particles, which will be sold as NFTs for about $1,500 each. Every particle represents a minority ownership in the painting and will come with a collector's card that shows the whole artwork as well as the particle's location on the painting. I see. So they don't actually destroy it, but they they draw invisible lines uh, in a 100 by 100 grid, making 10,000 small squares on the artwork and then you own that piece of the artwork. This is becoming a little bit tortured uh, as a concept. But um, does anyone have a have a comment on this interesting idea of how to do fractional ownership of this Banksy in this particular way? Okay. Next up, the face. Just, just quickly, Tyler. Sorry. Do you, does anybody else remember the um, the web page that did that? What was it? It was the one million dollar web page. It was years ago. Oh, oh, sorry. I just muted everybody. Sorry, Carl. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, but yeah, it was years ago, wasn't it? Can you remember that? It was just a web page, and it was in the early days of HTML, and you just you paid. It was one dollar for one pixel. Correct. Yeah, you can. Uh, it just smacks of that. It's, 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 it's like it's funny, it gets like news lines, but is it functional in any way? Uh... Technically, is it still an NFT if it's broken into pieces? Because, like, technically, the definition of an NFT is that it's like one single piece. So, technically, the whole painting should be an NFT. What they've actually done is they've tokenized the you know the painting so like in my understanding the painting should the whole thing should be the nft and then like the parts of it the hundred parts are like tokens that make up the nft so like i'm not really sure why they're calling each and every single piece an nft it's weird well they wanted to make <clears throat> for whatever reason this ten thousand, you know was pioneered with the crypto punks and it's been replicated consistently because it seems like people feel like having <clears throat> one of 10,000 is somehow still meaningful rather than say one of a million so <clears throat> and if you do one, if you only have a thousand pieces you are un, you know leaving a lot of money on the table so you could get 
potentially 10 times the money by having 10,000 pieces. It's like selling actions, right? Like if you have a company, you can buy ownership of the company or you can buy, you know, a fraction of the company by purchasing its like stocks. Sorry. But so it, it um, though, does, does somebody not own this actual piece of artwork, the physical piece? Because if they do, uh, your, fraction, the NFT then, right? your fractional ownership. Uh, no, I mean the physical painting. Uh, Tyler? Yes. Uh, there is like a company, a startup called Masterworks that have been done that with real art. So it's like real art, they own a gallery in New York and they do fraction of uh, right. paintings. Yeah, well, but like, you know, uh, one, no one thing my, here my, that differentiates here is Adriana, the fact that it's you, all digital. Adriana, my, my only question whoa, here whoa, is whoa. what is the right? Because right now... Adriana, so if the uh, the point is, if there's these nft holders and then you have the physical uh piece the physical piece uh whoever does own that you know enjoys that in their home they can resell it they put it in their house they put it wherever they want you as the fractional owner have no say whatsoever in what the actual owner does with it what what good is really owning a fractional ownership with if it doesn't include any rights at all or if that well, you don't know what rights it includes. That's written into the contract, right? So, like, that's what the NFT would actually say. Like, what is your... So in like, in a court of law, in a court of law, there are no recognized rights. That's the point. When it comes to real life, when it comes to the actual physical object, there is nothing to back you up right now. This is the problem that all NFT artists are facing at the moment. Yeah, but, but the idea... Oh, are like, also, like for this startup that I was mentioned before... You own a piece of a Basquiat that is in in an, uh, a gallery in New York, and if this Basquiat is sold, you have a piece of that. But in the other side, on the NFT, the rights is most like you know you can put as a picture in Twitter and as a picture in Twitter. But it, like you know, if all the ten thousand or a thousand people put that picture in Twitter, is that that would sound like you know crazy. It's just a key difference on that, though, is that it, it's very, very different when you start talking about tying it to a physical object, because the rules of the game are completely different. So, you know, this, this is something that needs to be sort of, it's the same as tying, uh, having the NFT of land. Uh, I can't remember what the, what the site is called that is just absolutely killing it at the moment, Decentraland or something. Um, you know, you don't actually have any rights to that piece of land. It's just a representation of it. So, and just in quickly to answer Magda, your point, um, I believe you were saying about the options, that there is a little bit of difference, as in options are essentially kind of fungible in, in, in the sense that they are identical. There is no real difference between them. Whereas if you're talking about this, if you're actually mapping the fractional um, NFT, mm -hmm. the shares, as it were, to a specific section of a painting, you know, oh, mine's the top left corner. That is actually non-fungible non -fungible because it's non-replicatable. It represents a unique, you know, the hash represents a unique thing that can't be traded for another like piece, if, if that makes sense. Supporters at the moment, and a lot of people are getting burned continuously on this. And, you know, when this kind of happens, the result normally is that regulators who don't understand it and who just see the, the horror stories like overstep the mark and come in and, and just they come in heavy handed, they come in with the whole stick and then everybody suffers for it. So, but like, see, that's the thing. Like, my friend, for example, has a like a blockchain based company that does um, 
real estate as NFTs and what they do essentially in the NFT contracts is that they, you know, like they use the law that you have right now as like an underlying layer to the NFT. So, you know, they're kind of going before like where the market goes with this because it's not really regulated right now but at some point it probably will be just because it's so much more functional than the system that works right now so like what they do is they sell the nft together with like all the contracts and papers that you need to have to prove that you actually do hold ownership of the real estate right so like they can do the exact same thing with the nft of any kind of art like you can own just the rights to the kind of electronic copy of it in the virtual world or you can you know like have it specified in the contract that you also have some kind of ownership to the physical asset but it needs to be specified Hello, can i make a comment Hello, can i make a comment go ahead Shahin. uh first uh, of all first Carly of all Carly was thinking thinking exactly, exactly that, website. that website the million the dollar, dollar home page and I think and it was think a, yes, yes. England, was a student, was a student in, England in England who did it. And he actually, and he actually ended, up ended up selling, selling most of those pixels for like, for like a pound, pound each, or something. each or something. But he did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the I think difference, difference here, is here is that exactly, exactly what you've talked, talked about, which is the rights, the rights management of this. And the rights and management for NFT is just a mess. And there will be lots of lawsuits before it's settled. Because it's not communicated well. When it is, when it people, is don't people don't read it, and, and there will be surprises. So that's, so a, big that's a big part of it. Yep. Uh, Shahin, when, <clears throat> when you're speaking now, do you hear an echo of yourself? I do. I do. Okay. And in fact, uh, and in fact uh, the, 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 the Twitter, the Twitter voice, is voice is coming quite loud and it's screechy too a little bit. How about now? I'm going to mute myself and I want to see if it fixes the problem. Go ahead and count. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, I think that, that stopped it, it seems. Okay, I figured out the problem. Thank you. So the next story is uh, crypto trading volume in Indonesia this year reached $50 billion by October, up over 10x year over year, 10 times, uh, despite the government and the Olema Council forbidding crypto payments. Next up, Match Group, which owns Tinder, will pay $441 million to settle claims by Tinder founders and executives that Match avoided paying them up to $2 billion by undervaluing the app in mid-2017. And I got to break out the applause right here on this one. That, that's my man, Sean Rad. Getting getting payday right there. I got let's let's try and ping in Sean Rad here into let's see if he's awake. How do I ping somebody in there? They don't have a ping in feature. Um, I guess I can share the room via DM on Twitter. Let's do that. Invite via DM. And let's invite in Sean Rad, who was the CEO. Of oh, there he is. Let's try and ping him in. Send. Okay. Let's see if Sean will pop in here. And give us an update now that this is all public. Uh, Match Group, which uh, acquired Tinder, <clears throat> and there was a lawsuit going on for quite a while. Um, it was started, I, I remember it pre COVID, and that Sean and I were talking about this, and that he was going to sue because they screwed him over in the sale of this company. And by 
lowering the valuation, undervaluing it by $2 billion. And so he took it to court. And now Match is settling it for, and they're going to give up $441 million rather than have the trial and risk losing $2 billion. Very interesting. Let's, I want to read this one. And keep an eye out for someone named Sean Rad joining the uh, Twitter stage here. And Cheryl, uh, let me know if you see him. So it says, uh, oh, here we go. It says, company says it will pay $441 million to the pl plaintiffs. So it's, I believe, Sean and Justin uh, and Jonathan, who are the other two co-founders. We're all in this suit together. It says, match has settled a lawsuit filed by a group of founders and executives of the Tinder dating app that had alleged the company undervalued Tinder to cheat them out of billions of dollars. Match said in a regulatory filing Wednesday it had agreed to pay $441 million to the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, which was filed three years ago. Yep, as I said. The plaintiffs, including Tinder co-founders Sean Rad, Justin Mateen, and Jonathan Bedeen, had alleged that Match and IAC Interactive cheated them out of as much as $2 billion by manipulating financial information to undermine Twitter's valuation. As part of the settlement, the plaintiffs agreed to drop all their claims against Match that are on trial and in arbitration, Match said, adding that it plans to pay the settlement using cash it has on hand. The representative for the plaintiffs declined to comment on the settlement. Tinder, the product of an IAC incubator for startups, was launched in 2012. Match, Tinder's parent company, had been an IAC subsidiary, but was spun out as a public company in 2015. In the lawsuit, the plaintiffs said part of their compensation from Match and IAC came in the form of Tinder stock options that were set to convert to March shares in 2017. They allege March that uh, to Match shares in 2017. They allege Match and IAC conducted a disinformation campaign using false information and projections to value Tinder at three billion in mid-2017, a figure the plaintiff's claim should have been far higher. At the time of the lawsuit was filed, Match and IAC said the valuation process was rigorous and followed uh, contractually defined procedures. IAC no longer had an ownership stake in Match. A Match spokeswoman said when Match separated from IAC, it agreed to fully indemnify IAC for the cost of tender litigation. She well, Looks like my boy's got uh, an extra $440 million. Well done, Sean. Um, I, they deserve... I, this, to me, I'm obviously very biased, but uh, I'm, I'm obviously happy for my friend that uh, he got a very nice payday there. So, the next one... It, oh, Sam has his hand up here. Let's see what Sam wants to say. Welcome, Sam. Uh, the next one says Tel Aviv-based FrontEgg, which helps SaaS companies track user data, raises $25 million. Uh, Meta, known as Facebook, selects AWS as its long-term strategic cloud provider, a partnership that includes helping AWS customers run uh, PyTorch framework more effectively. Blockchain audit service called Certix, or Certix raises $80 million. And those are your... Uh, big boring headlines for today, um, December 2nd, and that takes us right there to the top of the hour, unless somebody has a, a, a hot tweet they would like to share before we meet next time, where we will, we will dive much hey, deeper into the tweets. Hey. Interesting one for you. Go ahead. 
I just uh, tagged uh, you uh, on that. It is related to uh, the laser telecommunication uh, uh, trial by NASA, which is probably going to happen live on the 5th. Um, this promises to have uh, very fast uh, communications based on uh, optical uh, uh, communications now instead of uh, uh, RF. And it's think about it like you're using fiber without the fiber. So I think it's just a matter of time we got here. Uh, it is. Uh, it has a lot of promise, and it's not just uh, for um, you know space telecommunications. I think this has also ter some terrestrial uh, uses as well. Uh, with, uh, with but we wait wait and see how how it's going to go with NASA. That's it. I yield. Yep, NASA's taking step towards the next era of space communications with the launch of its Laser Communication Relay Demonstration, the LCRD, on Sunday, December 5th. Live coverage of the launch is scheduled to air on NASA television. The agency's first end-to-end -end laser relay system, the, LRC, the LCRD, is set to launch as part of the U.S. Space Force Space Systems Command Space Test Program 3, STP-3. Uh, which will launch on the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. Its two-hour launch window opens at 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Laser communications, also called optical communications because they use light to send information, offer higher data rates than traditional radio frequency systems. You know, because light goes faster than sound, you know. Uh, enabling... Um, well, uh, Enabling more data to be transmitted with each transmission, LCRD, will demonstrate space-to-ground laser communications linking ground systems in Hawaii and California. Later in the mission, the LCRD will receive and transmit data from an optical terminal that NASA will place on the International Space Station. Tyler, if I, if I may add something, it has nothing to do with light and sound. It's, uh, in both cases, it's RF telecommunications. Yeah, our radio frequency, yeah. Yeah, and, and light, uh, they're both running at the speed of light, ah. which is but you're able to encode more when you're using light than you can when you're using uh, yes. RF, whatever yeah, yeah. the frequency I, is. I was reading way too fast on that one. So thank you for that one, Sam. And we will save the rest of the tweets that everyone's tweeting in for when we meet next time, which is in precisely six hours. So a big thank you to everybody for joining us for another Tech News Around the World. And do join us again and follow me on uh, Twitter here or the Tech News Twitter account on Twitter. And we will see you next time. Thank you, everybody.
Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Mm-hmm. 